Please rise for the reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Hear now God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. I know that we are just getting started in our journey through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, but I also think it's very helpful when we go on a journey that we have an overview of where we're going. And so I want us to get out the map and locate some of the key points of interest. We're not just trying to get to the end of the journey. We also want to enjoy every part of the trip that we're making. As I often do, I found Dr. Peter Lightheart to be very helpful in orienting me in regard to the objectives of this letter. He is very excellent in developing those kinds of themes. And so today, I want to share Lightheart's big picture with you, along with a few observations of my own. Most of us love a good mystery. It draws us in. And it very quickly, once the mystery presents itself, makes us want a resolution. God has written the greatest mystery of all. It is not only available as a best-selling book. It was actually first played out in history and, in fact, is still being played out. And Paul's letter, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, He references this great mystery six times in six chapters. In chapter 1, he writes that, in chapter 1, verse 9, he writes that God, quote, having made known to us the mystery of his will. In chapter 3, he tells us what has been previously hidden from men uh, by God has, quote, by revelation, he has made known to me the mystery. 
He goes on to explain in chapter 4, verse 4, that, quote, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. The revealing of this mystery is not limited to the Jews, but rather Paul's intention, and in fact his mission is, quote, and this is from chapter 3, verse 9, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul wants the world to know what God has been up to throughout history. It turns out that even the common practice of marriage of this is a part of this mystery. In chapter 5, verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning the church. And he's applying that to marriage. And Paul concludes this letter requesting that the Ephesians pray for him so that, quote, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So a mystery is a secret until it's revealed, at which time, of course, it's no longer a mystery. Now we know what God was doing. And as a result, we can tell the whole world. This mysterious story has been long and complex. It has involved many players, including men and women and boys and girls, kings and servants, soldiers and slaves, nations and wars, victory and defeat, blessings and judgment. There have been many types and shadows. There have been hints and there have been promises. But even just prior to the resurrection, few really saw or understood exactly where the story was going. Jesus said, there's an exception here, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Dr. Lightheart writes, that's how Paul sees the Old Testament. God is telling a story in history, but the real point and the direction of the story is still secret. The mystery is revealed in Jesus, and the gospel is about the unveiling of this mystery. That is the good news, the solving of the mystery. When Paul preaches the gospel, he is telling the secret things of God. He is uncovering these hidden treasures from before the foundation of the world. So what is the mystery? This is not a little mystery, but rather one that encompasses God's big purpose for the entire cosmos, the entire universe. Quote in chapter 1, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. The unification of the universe. The bringing it together. So what does God plan to do with humanity, this fallen race? And, the, and that's part of the question and how this resolves itself. And that resolving of the mystery is the good news. So what was the mystery that was revealed to Paul, who was 
not excuse me, who is now revealing it to the Ephesians. Well, since it's God's story, we need to begin at the beginning. So let's start in Genesis. Now let's back up and actually go to the prequel. Before the beginning. Before the creation, we have the Holy Trinity living in community, living in communion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love. And then the three persons of the Trinity move together in harmony to create the world. Now we're at the beginning. Our beginning. The triune God, living in community, living in communion, created us in His image. Which means He made us for communion. We were meant to be together. We were meant to be together in love. Paradise, then, before the fall, was a place of unity, communion, and beauty. If this were the end of the story, we could say, and they lived happily ever after. But there was something rotten in Denmark. Sin always breaks unity and communion. It is a divider. Isaiah says that your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Moreover, in addition to the division caused by man's sin, God Himself also divided mankind. At the Tower of Babel, He confused their languages so that they could no longer work together to rebel against Him. And after the great flood, during the days of Peleg, whose name means, by the way, when he is, uh, means, his name means divided, the earth itself was then divided geographically after the flood. But God had not abandoned all men. In the midst of this, He chose one nation to, to reveal Himself to. He gave His law, which distinguished them from other nations. Lightheart writes, Israel was cut off from the Gentiles. As soon as Yahweh commanded Abraham to cut his body and the bodies of his sons with circumcision, the body of the human race was also cut in two. On the one side is the circumcision, on the other side is the uncircumcision. Dividing a living thing in two is a surefire way to kill it. Throughout the Old Testament, the body of the human race was a corpse lying on the earth, divided between Israel and the nations, Jew and Gentile. The human race was dead and was waiting for a resurrection. Now Israel was supposed to be the model of communion, to show the rest of the world what it was, how, it, what it, uh, how things were supposed to be. They were the holy nation who worshipped the one true God, but like Adam, they failed. They followed other gods, uh, the golden calf and the Baals. It wasn't long before Israel itself was divided into northern and southern kingdoms. They intermarried with pagans and adopted many customs from those foreign cultures. There was little left to distinguish them from the Gentiles. In Ephesians 2 verse 3, Paul is describing the Jews who had become like everyone else. Here's what he says. 
we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. We were just like they were. Now, it's remarkable what human beings then can do to justify themselves. Instead of being humbled by this defection and apostasy, the Jews had now become proud. They thought this division of humanity was good and that they could be alive all on their own. They thought they were special. God was on their side. They didn't need those Gentiles. So this brings us back to the mystery that Paul is referring to. And Lightheart puts it this way, the mystery is twofold. First, what in the world was God doing with Israel? Why would he choose a special people only to let them slip away into idolatry? Had he lost control of the situation? Second, what was he doing with Gentiles? Did he intend to leave them out in the cold? Are the Gentiles going to be second-class citizens in the human race that God is preparing? In the opening verses of Ephesians that we just read this morning, verses 3 through 14, Paul is offering up a prayer of praise to God, and he blesses God for three things. For making a plan. Second, for making a plan that centers on Jesus. And third, for fulfilling that plan through Jesus. So I want us to look at each of those three a little more closely. First, the plan. This life either has a plan or it has no plan. If there is a plan, the next questions are whose plan and when was the plan made? In Ephesians 1, Paul praises God for his plan. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Having predestined us, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of His will. We'll say more next week about predestination. But the point here I want to make this morning is His plan is not reactive, but purposeful. God had a destination in mind. That's why we have predestination. He knew where He was going. He not only has a plan, but the text tells us that he worked out all the details of that plan. There is nothing outside of his control. Let me ask you this. Isn't that how you plan as well? Isn't that what you did this morning to come to church? Then you have a destination in mind? 340 Northeast Stallings Drive at a certain time. And then you, maybe almost instinctively or maybe out of habit, you made a plan. You had to get up at a certain time You had to get ready to eat breakfast, to get dressed, to get in the car, to allow time to drive, to go a certain route, in order to do what? In order to make sure, as much as you were able, that you could arrive at your destination as you had planned. That's called predestination. And you controlled every single thing you could in order to be sure that happened. Now, there are things... We can't control. You could have had a flat tire. Uh, The phone might have rung at the last minute to delay you. Somebody could have gotten sick. There are many things that we can't control that could change and alter our ability to execute our plan. 
In fact, we often walk in if we're late or weren't able to come or whatever, and we have to call and, and say, something came up. We've had to change our plan. But with God, nothing comes up. He has control over everything. And so when he has a plan and he has a destination in mind, it is certain. He is not going to be surprised. And Paul is using this to comfort his people here who are living in a culture that is uncertain. It's uncertain to us, but he's telling them it's not uncertain to God. He has a plan. And it's an eternal plan, and it's an unchangeable plan. So the mystery of history turns out to be no mystery for God. The division caused by sin has not thwarted his plan. He is not reacting to unexpected circumstances, and he is not having to rewrite his story. (laughs) Second, Jesus is central to the plan. Paul will emphasize over and over that Jesus is the central figure throughout this mystery story from the beginning. God himself, in the person of the Son, takes on human flesh and enters into the mystery story. Remember, sins brought the division. In chapter 1, verse 7, Ephesians, In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Redemption. We're bought back. It's fixed. That which was broken is repaired. The forgiveness of sins, the sins are dealt with, are taken away. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's plan was to bring about the unity, the communion of divided humanity through Jesus. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him, in Christ. The mystery is now being revealed. It's being solved in the person of Jesus. The Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. In chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, by way of His resurrection, He is now at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Jesus, of course, doesn't work alone in this. God the Father has the plan. He chooses. He predestinates. He works things all, all things after the counsel of His will. And we also receive the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantor of our future inheritance. So all three persons of the Godhead are working to execute this plan. And then third... The fulfillment of the plan in Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul will explain that it is the blood of Jesus that will unite the Jews and the Gentiles. This divided humanity. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, that at that time, speaking to the Gentiles, 
you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Him, we read in chapter 2, verse 15, they are now united into one new man from the two, thus making peace. So communion for humanity is now restored through Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has brought down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the strife. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to you who were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In chapter 3, Paul begins to apply this teaching. He says, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, I, I, excuse me, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, have, excuse me, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, what? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And so... All those who trust in Jesus are united in this new human race in Jesus. Now, I know it's easy to get lost in what I'm doing. This is, we're covering a lot of material, reading a lot of text. So let me just pause and make sure you understand why this matters. Almost all of you, maybe all of you, are Gentiles. And without, you you and I were without hope without Christ in the world. And God, God's plan from the beginning, though, was to rescue us. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. And Paul is excited, if you will, to write and tell the Ephesians, God is doing something so big, and he's been doing it from the beginning, and he said, you and mine, you are part of the plan. In chapter 4, Paul urges the Ephesians, Therefore, since you're new, since you've been made alive again, since you've been brought together in Christ, I want you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What calling? The calling to live as the human race was created to live. How? In communion with God and in communion with each other. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
The whole purpose of the church and her pastors and teachers is in order for the church to do what? To grow into the unity or the community or the communion in Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets. That's the Bible. Some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So missionaries, pastors and teachers. For the the equipping of the saints. That's you. For the work of the ministry. That's you too, by the way. For the edifying or building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect or mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love We are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying or building up of itself in love. Now there's so much in there. We'll get to that later in probably several sermons, but. That's the mystery. God is taking this hodgepodge of chaotic humanity and he's bringing it together in Christ from all over the place. (coughs) Since the good news is that in Jesus Christ we're starting over. In Ephesians 4.17, Paul therefore calls on us to live in a new way. Take the old man, take off the old man, put on the new man, We don't live like that anymore. We don't, as he says, walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We have gone from living a feeling-oriented life of ignorance. Again, Ephesians 4, 17-24. That is, we didn't know why we were here. We just got up and did what we felt like doing day in and day out. Our anger, he says, has been replaced with reconciliation. Those who were thieves are no longer thieves. Now they work in order to help others. Even the way we talk to each other has changed from tearing each other down to building each other up. This new unified human race is tender hearted and is forgiving. And we are no longer drunk with wine, but filled with the spirit and with songs of psalms, songs and psalms of joy. Lightheart summarizes it this way. In short. Once God put his divided carcass of humanity back together in his son, the human race begins to live. God revealed part of his plan to Abraham, as I already mentioned. Remember what God said to Abraham, that it was through Abraham's seed, his Christ, ultimately, that the whole world would be blessed. So in other words, that's been the plan. That was God's plan when he was talking to Abraham. Then God sent Abraham to his house to implement the plan. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? So this is kind of the first revealing, if you will, or there are many hints and shadows along the way, but this one's pretty obvious. He says, Am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm doing? The mystery? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Abraham, here's my plan. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. How are you going to do that? What am I supposed to do? Where do I start? Abraham, go to your house. Teach your family to follow me, and I'll take care of the rest. And so, in chapter 5, Paul applies God's plan to the transformation of family life. This is the first place where the new communion should be seen, is at your house. Marriage is to be the very picture of Christ and His bride. A place that shows forth the mutual love and mutual submission of Christ and His church. God's plan in Christ is to renew husbands as loving heads, heads of their wives, and wives as loving, submissive helpers to their husbands. And He also calls for fathers to raise their children in the way that He intended for them to be raised from the beginning in order to fill the earth with godly children. Paul is not naive about the world. He knows that all of this is going to take place in the midst of a giant spiritual war. Therefore, Christians will need to prepare themselves. And so chapter 6, his concluding chapter in Ephesians, is going to deal with this spiritual warfare There are enemies, you see, of God's plan. If they could, they would frustrate the ending of God's story. These principalities and powers work full time in this world. This pattern of division and reuniting, though, is present from the beginning. Adam started as one man, but God put him into a deep sleep, and and from the rib he took from Adam, God created Eve. There was a separation, but then that separation led to a greater unity, and Adam and Eve became one flesh. God scattered the nations at Babel, but surely He meant to gather them again, which He did at Pentecost. He divided the human race in two by cutting off by, cut, by the cutting of circumcision, but in the end He would bring Jew and Gentile into one new man. The Gospel in the New Testament announces this is precisely what God has done. And no book of the New Testament makes this point any more clear than Ephesians. When Paul preaches the Gospel, he announces to people that they can be united to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of the Gospel. But right next to that, Paul also announces to people But they can not only be reunited to God, they can be reunited to each other. That is the resurrection of the corpse of the human race. I prayed this morning that we we were thankful. We not only prayed for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, but we are thankful that we have brothers and sisters throughout the world. From every race. From every class. Lightheart, I'm going to conclude with this quote. God created humanity for communion. Communion with Him and with each other. 
Through the mysterious process of tearing and reuniting, God has achieved that goal. In the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, those who believe can draw near to God. In Christ Jesus, they can draw near to each other. That is the great secret that Paul reveals in Ephesians. It is the secret of world history. The secret of God. Let's pray. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that our sins have broken the communion between us and you, and between us and other people. Some of those people are family members and others who are near us, and we are tempted to see others with eyes of disdain, people who are not like us, different races, different classes, different culture. We are part of the division of humanity that is the result of sin. And we are grateful that you sent your Son to remove that enmity. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, by putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Thank you, Lord, for revealing the mystery of the ages and for the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to live self-consciously in communion with you and with our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming to the table, I want to now add on or do an epilogue here to the sermon. I want to read a little bit longer passage here from Romans 11, but it, it pertains to this mystery we've been talking about. Paul says, I say then, having, have they stumbled that they should fall, speaking of the Jews? Certainly not. But through their fall, to, provide, to, to provoke them to jealousy... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so also are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, 
but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. The doctrine of salvation should humble us and should produce deep thanksgiving. If it doesn't, then there's something wrong. There's something defective with our understanding of salvation. We, like many of the Jews, are tempted to become arrogant and prideful, to look at all those sinners out there with disdain, and to presume that there was something in us that made us winsome to God when there was not. And we need to guard against that. So we come to this table of thanksgiving. Now I want to ask you, if Jesus told this parable, who are you in your heart? in your attitude, in this story. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even as the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we come to this table today to remember who we are in this story. We don't come here with our heads lifted high in ourselves. We're not here because God saw something in you and thought you were extra special. God had mercy on you. And how, therefore, ought we to love and to have mercy upon others. Our Heavenly Father, we offer up our united praises as the footstool, at the footstool of your divine majesty. We thank you that you preserved us during the night and raised us up again to see the light of another morning. And now that we are about to return again to our ordinary duties of life, after a day spent in your more immediate worship and service, enable us to go forth with an earnest desire to live under the influence of your heavenly grace. May it be a blessing to us and to those around us that we have spent a day in corporate communion with you and your people. May our minds continue on the things above, and may we fulfill our duties and our various positions with fidelity. As little children, we have all come to your table, Father, and as we have renewed covenant with you, 
May we serve in this coming week with humility and reliance, laying aside all envy, covetousness, jealousy, and sinful competitiveness, knowing that we are supplied by the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus, that we have been completely forgiven and cleansed, that we start anew. Help us now to live in harmony with one another, being slow to judge and quick to forgive, even as in Christ we are forgiven. Bless now this day our feast, our rest, and our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let them also, who love your name, be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Amen.